Uh, hello, welcome to episode 194 of NCP. Hooray. My name is David. We'll be the NCP crew, Richard. Hooray! And Luke. Yay! And Crystal. Super fast! <laughs> Zooming through this episode. Uh, for this episode, we have two dust jackets, and we'll also be group reviewing, minus Luke, Captain America Civil War. That's right. <laughs> I protest on religious grounds. <laughs> religious grounds. Luke My Scott's. team is not represented in this film. God's Not Dead 3. Yeah, Luke, Team Cosmic. Luke, <laughs> Luke's team was actually Team Edward. Uh, he was a little upset that uh, there wasn't a Twilight crossover. Mm-hmm. So Dust Jacket number one, it'll be Richard and myself doing The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein. Yes, she is. She is. Uh, for Dust Jacket number two, it'll be Luke and Crystal doing The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. John Ronald Rule. Is that what it says for? Yes. John Ronald Rule Tolkien. Oh, I never, there you go. I've learned something. And this is why I do the show, so I can learn stuff. Um, <laughs> hey, what's that you're doing there? Learning, boy! Doing some learning. Uh, then, of course, our group review, Captain America Civil War. So, without any ado, since I seem to be zooming through this episode, it's, uh, let's do our dust jacket number one. Richard and myself, Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Alright, so first up it's uh, Richo and myself. We're reviewing uh, one of the top three authors, Robert I- Robert A. Heinlein, and his classic, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. The Moon is, indeed, a harsh mistress. <laughs> As proven by this book. <laughs> the Moon is female. Well, her name's Luna. Now, uh, uh, first things first. Um, <laughs> first things first. This actually rounds out the top 20 for us, because The Moon is a, is a Harsh Mistress is actually number 20 wow. on sci-fi lists, list of top 100 sci-fi books. Cool. So that's it, we've done it, we've actually finished the top the top 20 now. Really? Yeah, that's that's an achievement. I it think. is an achievement. I think we've done really we're well. We're very proud of ourselves. Science fiction achievement unlocked. Now let's go <laughs> to uh, like the top 400 Let's do four hundred. The top four hundred. Well, there's two hundred on the on the list. Uh, so what was, was two hundred? I'd have to look it up. Oh, okay, fuck. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, <laughs> the moon is a harsh mistress, uh, as Dave said, uh, written by Robert A. Heinlein. It was published in 1966. Um, well, serialized originally. The serialization started in December '65 in uh, Worlds of If. Uh, and then continued on through... Worlds of If. if. Yeah, brilliant. And then continued on uh, through to April of 66. Why do we not have bags like that anymore? I uh, don't know. It's just... It's How they the sell? Dying, the dying... Uh, I'm sure they're still out there. Asimov's are still around. Yeah. Yeah? Oh, it's definitely online. Mm. I don't know if it's an actual physical magazine. Mm. Cool. Um, the book was highly critically praised and, in fact, uh, got the Nebula Award nomination in 66 and won the Hugo in 67. Yeah, but the Hugo's. Do they really mean anything? Well, suffice it to say, this <laughs> this book is highly critically claimed. In fact, yes. many people list it as, um, as Heinlein's best. But we'll get to that in a minute. It's the year 2075, and the moon, which as we know is a harsh mistress, <laughs> um, is, actually used, is actually used as a penal colony by Earth's uh, government. Um, the inhabitants of the moon live in underground cities. Um, most of them are criminals, political exiles, that sort of thing. But there is Australians, Australians, <laughs> um, Russians. There's a lot of uh, use of Russian and Australian terminology in this. Um, 
But um, there are also... Um, the moon has been used as a colony for a long time because there are also actual um, um, lunar-born people who are the descendants of, of the prisoners. earlier prisoners that have been brought up. So, yeah, so the prisoners, once, once you do your, serve your, ta- your term, you stay on the moon. Yeah, well, you can't... Yeah, because for, amongst other things, you can't come back to Earth because yeah. you've become adapted to the one-sixth gravity that the moon has. Yeah. And if you come to Earth, it basically is going to kill you over a certain period of time. Uh, the moon has a population of three million. Men outnumber women by um, two to one, which has led to... Um, a whole series of, um, I guess, social norms that have become, including polygamous marriages um, and linear marriages as well. Mm. Um, and in in the family unit, uh, women have all the power, basically, because they're so scarce. Um, however, we will get to. <laughs> however, we'll get to women a little bit later on as well. Um, all right. Uh, <laughs> That's beautiful, man. <laughs> Our main character is Manuel Garcia O'Kelly Davis, or Manny, as he uh, likes to be known, um, who is actually, he's a computer technician, and he's actually lunar born. Mm. So he's a multi-generation lunar person, um, and originally was a, a drilling person, but then lost an arm. And so now has a prosthetic arm. And because of that, he's moved into a, a computer technician role, but he's not really... He's just good with machines. Like, he's not really trained in computers, but he's picked up enough over the over the years. And, and there's not a lot of, like, skilled, trained workers on the moon anyway. Yeah. Yeah, because they are all criminals. So, and, so he's sought you know. after because he's actually quite quite educated. Exactly. And, and very good at what he does. Manny befriends a computer, Holmes 4, who they... Name Mike, or many names Mike after Mycroft Holmes. Um, and Mike kind of runs everything as, you know, computers, you know, I want to do in these kind of situations. But um, Mike has also developed consciousness mm. um, and is starting to sort of develop and build his own personality. Well, they've plugged him into so many computers that he's now essentially a brain. Exactly. An electronic brain. So, yeah, he's, he's coming to his own. Um, so, many. And Mike become um, through their relationships with Wyoming Not, who is known <laughs> as Why. Yes, Why Not, um, <laughs> and Professor Bernardo de la Paz, um, who are both revolutionaries. They think that the moon should basically secede from Earth, and that revolution is needed to do so. Um, they have very different differing opinions on how to go about that. Yeah, um, but. They enlist uh, Manny, and more importantly, Mike. Like, Mike is key to all of this. In a multi-year plan in order to allow this revolution to take place and for the moon to be able to secede from Earth. Mm. Um, The problem being that at the current rate... First of all, Earth is bleeding the moon dry. Yeah. Um, The moon has, um, within its sort of uh, cave structure that it has, it has farmers that are producing wheat. And then that wheat is being catapulted down to earth. Um, but they're, they're effectively a slave labor force under the control of uh, the Lunar Authority, who are pretty much acknowledged as being not only corrupt, but actually at times quite vicious and harsh, especially with the taxing of people. And they're taxing things like air. Like a um, mistress. Like a harsh mistress, that's <laughs> right. So this, the, the book then actually follows 
first of all, the early stages of the revolution itself. It's split up into three books. The first book deals with the lead-up to and the actual staging of the revolution. The second book deals with the attempts of the colonists to actually gain recognition from um, basically the planet, from the, the Earth government, that they are actually a sovereign state. And then the third book deals with um, Earth's violent response to that when they actually try to invade the moon and, and, and claim it again. Yeah. The first book sounds very much like, I think it was an Asimov story we read. There was there was uh, someone who'd gone to the moon and there's a couple of characters there who want to secede from Earth. And yeah. there's There are similarities there, especially in the actual, um, I guess in the world-building part of it. Um, one of the things I would say, looking at the positives of the book first, one of the things I would say is the world building here is actually quite strong in that Heinlein looks at the, the nature of the moon, the, the gravity, the ideas of how a penal colony is formed, much like you know early Australia, and then creates a societal structure to go with all of that. At times he gets very wordy in describing that rather than showing it which has always been a bit of a bugbear for us here at 10CP. Um, and especially in that in book one, there's a lot of talking, a lot of political discussions and diatribes and things like that. that yeah. Especially when the professor shows up. Yeah. Book two becomes a little bit more interesting because it's a lot more political and it sort of brings you to earth as well and you can sort of see the political... Machinations. Machinations, yeah, of of Earth and how Earth works and how it works in relation to um, the moon. And, and the basic s- suggestion here is that the Earth government is kind of corrupt. and it's like it is today. Yeah. And then book three is, I guess, more of your, your, your we're going to war. So there's a lot more fighting in that. There's attacks and counterattacks. And so each each book, I guess, has a, has a different approach. Um, which I must admit kind of makes it leaves you feeling a little stunted at times. Especially, I found the first book especially a little bit of a slog to get through. Um, but I found that it picked up in books two and three. Okay, I, I unfortunately can't uh, confirm nor deny that because I only got two book two. Yeah, and I can I can understand that. Mm. Like I was I was feeling a little bogged down early as well. I, just, um, I couldn't. I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, when when um, when Manny and the professor come to Earth to try and actually gain recognition of independence, mm. that's when I think the book becomes a bit more interesting because things are actually happening. Uh, I also found during the revolution, Manny, our main character, because this is a first-person perspective book, we're told a lot of we we brush through a lot of what he's doing, and then the revolution happens and he's really not there for it. Like Ooh. it's he's there in the aftermath to sort of help and, and and I suppose look there's probably that's how revolutions often go especially Ooh. with the people at the top but um, for me I was a little bit disconnected because of that right and I got to say Manny's kind of interesting but not I wouldn't call him a brilliant character Mike I like Mike the computer yeah you know I always always like characters that are trying to gain sentience. Um, computers that are trying to gain sentience and um, Mike is kind of interesting um, I actually found him probably the most interesting character in the book The Professor? Yeah. 
He's just a he's, he's a carbon copy of every other you know science fiction professor. Worse still, I think he's a carbon copy of the professor from um, Stranger in a Strange Land. I thought yes. you were going to say Futurama. No. <laughs> <laughs> if only he's, he was like like Professor he fulfills, Farnsworth. He fulfills the exact same role so much yep. so that I felt like I was just if that professor had been put on on, on the moon as a political dissident yep. after the events of. Um, uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. Got the same this guy? would be him. Um, you should research that. Maybe it is him. Maybe it's like as a as a, as a sequel of some guy. Um, that would be hilarious. No, no, it's not. I think we're giving Highland too much credit. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, obviously, I, I'll I'll be the one to say it. I think you're being a little too nice. As <laughs> oh. I think, I just I don't understand the the admiration that Highland gets. I just don't <laughs> think he's that good. Well, there is. I'm I'm gonna this is I'm gonna tee off on him here in one respect. Really. Yeah, as in nerd rage, dear. Well, like I said, I, nerd rage? I like the world building. Um, I like, like I said, books two and three. I like the political machinations and things like that. Um, and I can see really what what I think he's trying to do is here is to sort of tap into the revolutionary spirit that was present, um, you know, in, in the mid to late sixties. Um, however. The area that he has completely missed the boat for me is his depiction of women. Right. Um, but they undulate. It's a problem. <laughs> it's the amount of times the word undulate is, is in the book is, yeah. is quite freaky. We, we get taught to undulate at a very young age. <laughs> oh, well, they also, yeah, they, she undulates because she's a woman, but also because of her, her um, because of the gravity and stuff like that. So. Yeah. But um, <laughs> here it's like, he's, it, it's like he's trying to write... Uh, Wyoming not as as uh, you know a strong character and a strong political figure and quite opinionated and all those sorts of things, but at the same time he just can't help but slip into the same sort of thing he had with the women in um, Stranger in a Strange Land. They're all beautiful and curvaceous, and guys are checking them out all the time and patting their butts. And um, it's like it's Tee-hee. like he can't. Yeah, it's, it's it's like he can't help himself, but but. In, even here, in, in trying to write possibly a stronger woman than he's the woman than he's written in the past, he can't help but write her as a sex object half the time, you know. Yeah. And even then, she yeah, when she's she becomes like a super smart Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, this is the thing, and it's like all all the guys are checking her out all the time. Yeah, and talking and about how cool. gorgeous she is, and yeah. you know, and I've just found it so annoying and that's not to say let's let's just let's just put it there that's not to say that we're not saying beautiful women can't also be smart and vice versa no of course not it's just that highland doesn't know how to write them (laughs) we're not saying they don't exist in real in the real world they certainly do he's not talking about the male characters but he just can't do it for some reason yeah this is just it it just they're all she comes across well this is the thing she comes across as uh, as basically an object of desire for everybody um and it seems like it seems like once again, it seems like what if you took the women from Stranger in a Strange Land, mm. transported them to the moon, gave them political revolutionary beliefs, but then still kept them exactly the same in every other way? And so I found that she became a little bit of a caricature for me, much like much like the professor in some respects, because the professor is just there to espouse political beliefs that you know, and and he's. He's a little bit more interesting in that he fulfills a, a, a bigger role to the people of, of the moon during the revolution. But I kept thinking, well, why can't Wyoming not be doing this? Yeah. Why can't, you know... 
And it's like, a woman's place is here doing these sort of things. And women are good at these sort of things, but they're not very good at these sort of things, you know. They're not strong enough to do these things and things like that. And and I just well, that's think... that's true, though, Dave. Well, I think it's just <laughs> that... I think the, the thing is here, you're dealing with a, a writer who is in some ways trying to tap into the, you know, to the beliefs and the politics and the, the like I said, the revolutionary spirit of the 60s. But he's still a writer that's got some of the sort of conservative 50s views as well. The kind of views that we saw in um, Starship Troopers. Uh, <laughs> you know, now it, it is kind of interesting that he seems to have developed away from the sort of ultra-right-wing approach that so completely annoyed me with Starship Troopers. You know, through Stranger in a Strange Land, which was 62, 63, to this point. But, yeah, but, God, it just... His, the writing of Wyoming not just so frustrated me, and it actually detracted... Like, it distracted me away from the actual story. The thing that detracted me from the story is that it's a bad story. <laughs> I was bored out of my head. I just don't understand the 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 Heinland admiration. I just don't get it. The three books that we've covered are all crap. Well, I didn't go that far on. Well, I did on Starship Troopers, which is total crap. <laughs> but um, look, I think part of it is, like I said, he's probably like. Stranger in a Strange Land wasn't that successful when it was first published, but by the time you get to the late 60s, it becomes like a counterculture, yeah. you know, book. So I think that the, the, part of what the appeal might be, um, especially at the time, was that he was able to tap into a lot of that. It's just obviously he wasn't able to tap into, you know, the women's rights movement or anything like that um but obviously he's you know he's he's here you've got a book about revolution at a point when people were talking about revolution um and he tries to say you want a revolution and he tries to um he tries to to run you through the different aspects of a revolution and what that what that would be about in a really boring way but i can understand people at especially like i said at the time i can understand Mm. people appreciate it i like I said, I found that once the story actually really got going, like once the revolution happened and everything that comes after that, that's I think when the story really takes off. And there, yeah, there is a, it is a, a hard slog at the start there. It's a harsh slog. It's a harsh mistress at the start there. No doubt about that. Um, Interesting. It's but I, I would put this so far ahead of Starship Troopers. It's not funny. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, Starship Troopers. Like I said at the time, it's. I mean, if you're interested in the mili- in the military then by all means, go for it. It's very well done for what it is. But as a story, it just does not work. And coming back to could, this... Could you say the same about this book? <laughs> yeah, it's if, if you're interested in starting a revolution, <laughs> then this hey, is the way to go. give it a read. <laughs> but uh, if you want to actually enjoy life and spend time doing things you actually enjoy doing, <laughs> don't read this book. Ooh, or, any other, or any other Heinlein book. Because <laughs> really, it is, he's just not that good. I to just be, don't get it. To be fair, you've only read three. Well, that's right. How many has he got? More than three. <laughs> a lot more than three. Okay, well, maybe maybe there's a gem out there. Who knows? I mean, that's true. There could be a gem. But we haven't encountered But the three that we've covered, I haven't liked any of them. <laughs> strike and, three and he's know, out now. Strike three. And he didn't start off well when we did Strangers. He was already a negative at that point. <laughs> so it was mind. a hard slog to try and get up. I didn't mind Strangers. So, no, neither did yeah, I. Cool. I, do, I do remember the Luke versus Dave Stranger in a Strange Land argument that, that wait, broke out. Are you, are you got a rating? Um, yeah, look, um, I 
I would give this book. I'm going to give it th- three Lukes. Right. I'm Come taking. On. I'm taking. I'm taking book. half Luke away for uh, the first book, which okay. was a slog, and one and a half way for its abysmal depiction of women. Right. Um, it, it, and and kind of I like it. So you've worked your way down. Yeah. From perfection and, down. Well, that's what I normally do yeah, in, okay. in my rankings. Yeah, that's cool. I actually go. Yeah. I, I go up. Yeah, you start at zero for me, and then work and your you've way got up. to build. You got to earn your your, your See, looks. I do that. <laughs> I, I, I do that with movies, but with uh, books, I try to give it the, the benefit of the doubt. Um, right. But yeah, yeah, it's depiction of women, um, and in in, but worse still, not just his depiction, but it's depiction of women in a way where I'm actually thinking he thinks he was doing. A, a good deal here. It's like you know, with, with the sort of matriarchal setup of families. That like, I get the yeah, feeling yeah. he thought maybe this was this was this was you know a really strong you know women's rights book. Classic, but it just wasn't. All right, cool. Well, I give it, I give it one Luke because it's better than the zero strangers in a strange land. <laughs> and yeah, Mike is pretty cool. I actually quite Mike is cool. I actually quite enjoyed Mike. Mike is cool. You can't you can't say no to a sentient computer yeah. that wants to learn about you know human humour. Yeah. And uh, you know, how good jokes are. You can't yeah. go past that. That's that's classic sci fi. Did he did he do the salty emissions bit? No. He's not an android. No, he's not <laughs> no. an android, no. no. But um no. but uh, but other than that, this this is an avoid. Mm. Okay. It's not offensively bad. I don't but know. It's bad. I don't know. Some of the women's stuff is <laughs> Potentially offensive. No, you're right. I take that back. Some of the, if you're a woman <laughs> and you're reading this book, it is offensively bad. <laughs> but, but in terms, I mean, the guy at least knows how to, you know, how to put some two, you know, two or three words together to form a sentence. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about that. But other than that, <laughs> avoid. Awesome. I think we've pretty much established that Rubber Highland is a hack. <laughs> and, Not quite uh, <laughs> how I put it, but okay. But he's one of the big three. Let's move on to Dash Jacket number yeah, two. The worst of the big three, though. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's let's move on quickly. We've seen everything we need to say. Yeah. yeah. Let's move on to Dash Jacket number two, Luke and Crystal, The Lord of the Rings. Okay, seriously, like, you know, why we haven't done this book yet already, given that it's probably the pre preeminent um nerd culture book of all time. Um, that's a voted, big, that's voted, a big call. Voted by Australians as the greatest book of all time. You quoted that, do you? I do. Well, I mean, um, we're reviewing it. It's important yeah. to understand the oh, impact. I never voted in that poll. Neither did I. I <laughs> so you didn't for vote it. for the Da Vinci Code as the eighth greatest book of all time. Okay. Um, you will not sell this podcast by mentioning that in relation to Lord of Rings again. <laughs> The storyline is pretty basic. If you don't know the story, if you haven't read the story, stop listening now. Go and read all three books in a thousand pages. Right, done. The or watch the movies. Or watch the movies. They cover the very basics. least watch the film. I don't know. Reading the, the book might be quicker. <laughs> um, okay. Following, uh, following on from The Hobbit, because uh, everyone sometimes seems to forget that this is, in fact, a sequel work, not, uh, not uh, quite as standalone as people think. Um... Um, but uh, Frodo inherits um, a, a magic ring from his uncle Bilbo, who has decided to leave the, the Hobbit. Who has decided to leave the Shire um, because he's getting weary and tired of life, and tired of life in the Shire, and wants to go out and see the world again. He's also quite old. He's, he's eleventy-one. Also, he's also quite old at this point, and he gives it to him on his um, uh, gives it to he hands it over to Frodo on his birthday. Frodo, unbeknownst to him himself, accept accepts the ring. Um, however, his friend Gandalf, who's also a friend of Bilbo, goes and does some research on the ring and discovers that this is, in fact, the coveted ring of power 
the ring that belonged to, to um, Sauron, the the evil lord who tried to take over Middle Earth. The One Ring. Um, several centuries ago, and the One Ring that actually has power over the other magic rings um, in the in the world, and Sauron, who's um, accumulating power again and trying to take physical form after his last defeat, um, and massing quite a spectacular amount of power, um, is trying to get the ring back. So Frodo is tasked with um, with taking the ring to Mount Doom in Mordor, where the ring was forged, um, and throwing it into the fire because that is the only place where it can be destroyed. He takes along with him his, um, his gardener, Sam, his cousins, Merry and Pippin, um, and an assort, uh, four. Are they his cousins? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've missed that. I thought they were. I thought they were Sam's cousins. No, they're no, his, no, cousins. They're his cool. cousins. Sorry, moving. Um, and uh, Gandalf himself, mm. as well as uh, four represent four representatives of the wider world. Um, you know, the the uh, two representatives from the world of men, Boromir and Aragorn, um, and a representative each from the world of dwarves, Gimli, and elves, Legolas, and they are tasked with. Uh, assisting Frodo, as far as they can, assisting Frodo in his quest. However, calamity does ensue fairly early on, um, and when the the, um, the Fellowship, as they call themselves, find themselves divided, Sam and Frodo have to take the One Ring to Mordor themselves, whilst Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli have to, and Gandalf have to rally the rest of Middle-earth into, into war against Sauron's forces. It's a very succinct plot. It, it, the the story encompasses three encompasses three books, and it took Tolkien fifteen years to write. Um, he wrote it whilst his son was actually over overseas fighting in World War Two, and he would send his son chapters every week um, in order to keep his son's morale, Christopher Tolkien's morale up. Does um, Christopher survive World War Two? Yeah, oh, yeah, he goes yeah, he on to write he, books. He actually become he, he actually awesome. takes over the estate, Tolkien's estate, and edits um, the Silmarillion. Um, once his father dies, and then is responsible for editing a series of books detailing the creation of Middle Earth and looking at the the development of Lord of the Rings in particular. Wow! A couple of criticisms of the book. A couple of criticisms of the book. First, first of all, yes, a lot of people are going to be put off by the very slow pace at the start. Um, it does take a while for Frodo to um, be given and then accept um, the uh, the ring, and even then, once he gets given the task by Gandalf. I mean, it takes a long time to actually leave the Shire. Um, but that's... It's not... I mean, it, it is a slow pace, uh, given the scope of the, the, but the it plot, of, yeah. but it's it's an enjoyable visit in the Shire. Yeah, I've never actually had any problems with, you know, the Farmer yeah. Maggot stuff, or yeah. myself. Um, but that's one of the criticisms that gets levelled against um, the book. Yeah. Um, also, you know, uh, introduction of Tom Bombadil, who is subsequently cut from every single dramatised version... Um, that's ever been done, to my to, to my knowledge. Because he's just not necessary for the Because he's not. There is one. The important thing is, is that in the Tom Bombadil sequence, that's the first time Frodo puts on the ring. Yeah. Um, but it's actually much better dramatically for him to do it in Bree yeah. in public. Um, and that's the other thing I haven't actually mentioned that the ring itself, um, being of such immense evil, is actually trying to um, corrupt Frodo as he's where uh, trying to corrupt Frodo. The, the closer he gets to Mordor, and the more he puts on the ring, the more he opens himself up to the ring's evil, and is going to become more wraith-like, like, um, like Gollum. Hmm. The other person, tra- the um, the, the one creature trying to tra- trying to track them down, so he can get the ring back because he was the ring's previous owner. Um, the other criticism that gets leveled against uh, Lord of the Rings is the really the lack of female characters. 
Mm. Um, there are a couple of very strong female characters in this. Um, Galadriel, who they made um, towards the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, um, and then of course I really don't need to say too much about Eowyn, who is just a phenomenal character and gets one of the absolute best moments in the entire saga when she faces off against the Lord of the Nazgul in the Battle mm. of Pelennor Fields. So then what's with the criticisms, though? I mean, that you've got... A, because you've got, the, you don't have a lot of female characters, that is true, but they have some of the most important scenes. They have some of the most important scenes, but the criticism is that, you know, there is a lack of representation. You yeah, know, the, most the, the balance. The most, most of the stories are characters. It's, it's, but the story is actually... You've got to remember, you've got to remember when <laughs> this was... It's a fantasy, you know, though. Yeah. Like, yeah. You've got to remember, though, when this was being published. This was actually being published in... It was published and ignored in the 50s. Yeah. Um, and then when pirate copies made their way to America in the early 60s and the hippie movement... Um, mm. took pirate copies yeah pirate copies they weren't legit copies but then when the hippie when the hippie movement took on a lot of its um, more uh, worldly uh, exposition which was sort of, sort of ironic given that it was written by a Catholic um, it sort of gained prominence then um, and then you know at right about the same time as the feminist movement was kicking into high gear people like Jermaine Greer became very critical because this, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of representation in the story. This is this is not my criticism no. of the book. Oh, so you're listening. You're listening. You're listening. See, these are criticisms. Common criticisms. These are common yeah. criticisms. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I, have, I have no problem with that as a, as a well, woman myself, given the time it was written, and, hmm. and, it, and it's there's women aren't left out of the story through any malicious. No. It's just the way it was. I think um, uh, my counter argument to that would be there's no negative depictions of women here. So there's a bit of an omission yeah. in that there's not a lot of female characters there. But the female characters that are presented mm. are presented well. So yeah. it's not like a, a lot of fiction where they leave out uh, female characters and then when they do bring them mm. in, they're, you know, they're slaves or mm. beautiful, voluptuous yeah. women. or well, kind of like Game, what we of, were, Game of Thrones style. Well, even what, even, even what I was saying mm. earlier about um, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Yeah. Where it's like if you know, you've got to have a beautiful and voluptuous who, and who, 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 who everyone ogles and, and ovulates yeah. as she moves. Exactly right. Yeah. So um, hilarious. So yeah. So there's no negative, I think, depiction no. of women in Lord of the Rings. Um, but the key strength um, here is the two, the two key strengths I think here: um, the myth making. Mm. Um, Tolkien was adamant that Britain have its own mythology again, and he was trying to do that with um, the Silmarillion in, in general and Lord of the Rings in particular. And the world building. Um, I just the world building is immense. It's, Lord of the Rings is one of the few books I've read where I've not only devoured the books four and a half times, but I've mm. read all the appendices. Mm. Um, I taught myself how to write Elvish. Wow, very cool. I mean, I can't I can't write it off the top of my head. Yeah. I have to refer back to the appendices, but mm. I can I can do that. Mm. Um, I can transliterate English into Elvish. Awesome. <laughs> um, it's and it's, it's just great. it's it's one of the few books where you where I've fully immersed myself mm. in the story. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. the even the walking part. Like another one of the most common criticisms is there's so much walking in this book. But I enjoy that because I mean I'm a walker myself. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and walking is one of my thinking. I don't times. mind. I don't mind the walking. What are they going to do? Drive a car? But yeah. I, yeah. But, you know, um, <laughs> it is what. <and>, <laughs> But, you know, that was also about seeing the world as well. And that, that's yeah. the thing that people yeah. take for granted. An appreciation that the, for nature. Is that, that the, entire, yeah. the, the entire story is actually centred around four um, insular, unworldly people mm. who have never stepped foot outside of um, the borderlands of their home before. 
and they're actually seeing the wider world for the first time. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and so it's all about their reactions and their inexperiences and, and how they um, and how they take in and how they become more worldly at the end and how that's reflected when they return yeah. home. Um, so I never had a problem with those that yeah. stuff either. Um, but yeah, it's it, you know the the character the the this is what people tend to tend to forget about. It's actually about the journey that these guys go on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the horrible things that they have to endure. They, you know, they, it's not just, you know, a slap around the head. You know, they get tortured. They get imprisoned. Yeah. Frodo, at one point, is, you know, bitten by a spider and, you know... Um, strung up. Even worse, stabbed with the wraith sword. Stabbed with the wraith sword. Yeah. Um, has his mind torn in this constant battle between him and, you know, mm-hmm. utmost evil. Um can, can, can I, just, I just want to touch on something just, just, just very quickly. So, uh, one of the biggest, the biggest sort of mems of, of Lord of the Rings no, is, is, the, is the eagles, no. right? So, why do they not just take the eagles? Now, they, I, we won't go into delve into into DP because we've, we've discussed it before. But that, I mean, I just want, I want mm. you to say there with the journey. It's about the journey. Yeah, that's right. And if the, if he if they'd taken the eagles, mm. there would have been no journey. Yeah. Yeah. Just assume the eagles are fickle and will only help out to a certain extent. Yeah, and that's, well, there's that, that as well. That is that is They actually. State, this is what gets lost. Gwai here early on states that when he's rescuing Gandalf, actually yep. says, I cannot take you to the ends of the earth. Yeah. I was sent to bear tidings, not burdens. Yes. And you, you don't need to really carry, cover that in the films because all they do is show up for the end fight scene at the yeah. end. And that's the thing. Everyone was going at the, that end point. Yeah. Oh, the Eagles show up. The Eagles have been there all along and that criticism has not been leveled at this film. No. Um, at that point, they get overused in the Hobbit movies. Yes, I will argue that point. They yeah. do get overused in the Hobbit movies, but in the, I had no problem with the Eagles in this. Yeah. Um, and there is justification. They don't, as Richo said, they don't choose to get involved unless yeah. it's mm. absolutely necessary. Hmm. Um, yeah, and, and, and Gandalf only yeah. gets saved because he, he, the king of the Eagles, owes him a favor. Yeah, and that's it. That your favor's done. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Like I said, I'm trying to keep this as brief. This is actually, you know, my favorite novel of all time um, and you know, there is a lot that I could say is there, Crystal is there anything that <laughs> well I first read this novel about 25 26 years ago because I heard David and some friends talking about it in a computer class and I was so intrigued that I went home and asked my uncle who was staying with us at the stage do you have a copy of this book which he did and he lent it to me and I think I maybe gave it back about 5 or 6 years later <laughs> when I finally bought my own copies um, yeah I, I, there's not much more I can add that Luke hasn't already said this is just it's, it's, a, it's a book you can dive into and experience the world and, 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 and yes there's a lot of walking and meandering but you're a part of the group and you're enjoying being in mm. their company the, the hobbits are fantastic friendly mm. people who love food and stories mm. and drink and and the friendship between Frodo and Sam I, Sam is just the best character ever, and and it just show that I mean, Sam is the epitome of the the little person standing up and and doing what's right for the world. But and the, for his friend, Frodo that's the would, thing that I love. Frodo about would Sam. never have succeeded without Sam. Absolutely. No. Um, in fact, you make the argument that Frodo actually fails. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Sam has to. And, and, and then, but the only reason why he doesn't fail sooner is because, because his friend Sam. is adamant that mm. the right thing gets done. Sam is and, the, and, Sam is the only one who could bear the burden of the ring and mm. not be corrupted mm. by mm. it. And it should be pointed out Sam's not without prejudice. He hates Gollum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's actually, without. What's well, got justification for that? Some justification, but there is you know there's a point where you know Gollum is actually could actually be trying to do the right thing, 
and that Sam towns him further. So he's actually quite prejudiced against Gollum. Um, but you know, at the same at the same time, his his good qualities actually see him through, and his journey from being a very small, um, insecure person to being um, a hero mm. was actually quite well defined. What I love about Sam too, he is literally the only person doing this quest for purely altruistic reasons. It's my friend needs purely my for help. love. He yeah. loves Frodo and he's yeah. going to help him. My friend needs help and so I'm helping him. Mm. And half the time he doesn't even seem to really understand just mm. how how important what they're doing is yeah. or what what the nature of what they're doing is. He just does it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, whereas everybody else it's like there's, there's some other reason there. Mm. Sam's Gandalf, just doing it because, you know, you help your friends. Gandalf recognises that right from the start which is why he's keen to have Sam go along on yeah. that. Yeah, um, as opposed to Pippin and full of a duck. Yeah, um, there's a lot that I could talk about with this, both the, the books and the films, which I'm also huge fans of. Mm. Um, but yeah, the my favorite book of all time. I give this four and a half looks. I'm happy to give this. This is up there with the Foundation series for me, and I gave that five. I'm happy to give this five as well. Awesome. Cool. It, it doesn't get a five because of uh, Legolas's uh, poetry reading. <laughs> poetry reciting. Yeah, see, you, you, it's one of those things that you just accept it as being. I, I, I focus on the Legolas Gimli friendship. Yeah, and that's the thing that I take from that. The first time yeah. I read it, I read it all. Second time I read it, I skipped every single. <laughs> Even the lament to Gandalf. Even that. It doesn't get a five because Luke is the world's harshest <laughs> critic. Well, look, the book isn't without its flaws. I mean. Y- y- you could make the argument that we could persuade the eagles to save the day, but Tolkien's human like everyone else. Yeah. He's allowed to make a mistake. Mm. Yeah, I'm with you. Around this time every year, we like to revisit Asimov, who, as Dave would tell you, is a better writer than Highland. <laughs> <laughs> the guy, who, oh, well, I say the guy, but whoever wrote the latest Kmart catalogue is a better writer. <laughs> I, I do like that uh, you're talking about Highland's depiction of women that Asimov admitted he's he in his early stuff at least he, he didn't write women well at all if at all because he didn't know any women and didn't understand them. I think the difference there is though that he's his omits women from his stories then. Yeah, because he knows he'll write them badly. Yeah, whereas Highland doesn't seem to, you know. Anyway, enough of that. Um, We will be revisiting Asimov and we will be reading The End of Eternity. And the crew pick is Crystal. Well, I've got the Asimov bug as well. I've decided that I shall also do an Asimov book and I'm thinking we might do the first uh, collection of the Black Widow stories. Cool. Sweet. So it's an all Asimov special. All yes. Asimov all extravaganza. <laughs> so I'm deviating a little bit from the science fiction here because the Black Widowers aren't science fiction stories. The Black Widowers are a gentleman's club who oh. uh, work out uh, detective stories. So Asimov did detective stories. Asimov did all Asimov sorts did of genres. everything. Asimov was the man. I'm intrigued. Yes. <laughs> cool. All right, well, that'll be in episode 198. 198! Getting close to 200. Yeah. Coming up next, Captain America, Civil War. Dun, dun, dun. That would have worked better if my voice hadn't broke. <laughs> oh, that was kind of cute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so, this is, uh, so we're uh, Lukeless for our uh, Civil War. <laughs> That's a weird phrase. Lukeless. <laughs> we're lukewarm. <laughs> oh, dear God. <laughs>
And that is the extent of the comedy stylings today. I've got a headache, and it, uh, that's about as far as I'm willing to go. That's fair enough. Um, yeah, so uh, Luke decided not to join us for uh, this uh, second bit. We have, rec- we have recorded this bit separately, so if the sound is a bit off, then uh, that's what it is. But we've just come back from seeing Captain America Civil War, the event that is Captain America Civil War. And uh, we wish to talk about it with you good people, and even you bad people. Whoever's listening, really. We don't judge. Hello. <laughs> Although we're about to judge the film. <laughs> Richard looks a bit scared. Reviewers gone into <laughs> strange territory. If you still lose, if you're still with us after that rambling intro. <laughs> okay, Captain America: Civil War is the next up in the the Marvel Studios extravaganza. The juggernaut that is the Marvel juggernaut. Studios. That's, that's what universe. I wanted to say. The Marvel Nort. Uh, it is 147 minutes long, and yeah, we knew that. <laughs> so we were, when we were watching it. Uh, anyway, so it is uh, directed by uh, returning directors Anthony and Joe Russo from uh, returning from Winter Soldier. Uh, it stars uh, Chris Evans as Captain America, and then a whole bunch of others. Pretty much half the Avengers are in here. So Black it, Widow. It's essentially an Avengers film, but with yeah, centered around Captain America. It's Avengers two point five. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially what it is. So you've got. So yeah, so it's I mean anybody who's seen any of the trailers will know it's it's uh, Cap and his team who are anti. Uh, well, in the comics, it's anti-registration, but in the movie, it's anti. Accord. Accord, which I guess is still registration when you think about it. Well, it's the same basic yeah, approach. It's, it's, it's basically becoming tools of the of the United Nations. Yeah. yeah. Um, more, more, more so, I suppose, because they're not just being registered. It's like you've just got to do what the council yeah, says. Do what the council says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it harkens back to the uh, the, the classic period of the Avengers when they were under control of, of, of the United Nations with um, uh, Henry Henry what's his name yeah Henry Garrick as their liaison ah the good old days good old days uh, anyway so uh, and he's opposed by Iron Man and his team uh, Iron Man of course played by Robert Townley Jr. and uh, who are pro sort of registration or, well Iron Man's still going on carrying on from his uh he, the recent events from his films where he's uh, very much very guilty of his hand in the events of Ultron. Um, and uh, yeah, feels like it's a good idea. It, it's interesting that uh, since super, I was going to say the first Superman film, but you know the one I mean, the first Henry Cavill Superman film. Yeah, Man of Steel. Man of Steel. We're starting to focus on superheroes creating um, collateral damage in the in the form of civilian deaths. Mm. It's a running theme. It's a theme. Yeah, so Captain America's team uh, is... Oh, it also follows on from Captain America with a soldier, of course, with uh, Cap and his search for his friend Bucky, uh, who was a Winter soldier and is now you know, just trying to live a peaceful life, buying plums. <laughs> so Captain America's team is uh, Captain America, of course, Bucky, uh, Wanda, who's in the, the Scarlet Witch, uh, uh, Hawkeye, Ant-Man, and Falcon which is a pretty cool team. Then you got Iron Man's team, which is uh, Iron Man, Black Widow, War Machine, Vision, or just Vision as he's just called. Yeah. Uh, Black Panther, making his debut. And, uh, of course, Spider-Man! Which is a spoiler, but then if you saw the trailers, he was it's, pretty much all over it's it. It's not a spoiler. So. <laughs> he's in the trailers. I knew Spider-Man was going to be in it. I didn't know Ant-Man was going to be in it. 
Oh, okay. So Ant-Man's the spoiler. Ant-Man actually is in the trailer as well. So, yeah, yeah. Obviously, he didn't pay attention. He didn't pay that much attention, no. Um, Yeah, so uh, it is... uh, Not only is it the introduction of Black Panther to the the big screen, which is uh, very cool, because he is very cool. Um, It is, of course, the introduction of uh, Spider-Man to the the Disney-slash-Marvel cinematic universe uh, instead of the awful... Amazing Spider-Man. Which is where he was. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so thank God for that. Thank you, Jesus. Um, <laughs> yeah, so briefly the story. It seems not complicated at first, but it really is quite simple. <laughs> um, the, there, is a, uh, there is a gentleman who blames the Avengers for certain events in his life. And so he get, has a very elaborate plan to cause them emotional distress... Well, basically, um, to, yeah, to cause to, them to collapse yeah. from the inside. Yeah, because he realizes he can't do it himself. He's just a normal human, so he can't do it himself from the outside. So he's gonna he's gonna make them collapse from the inside. And I've got to say, actually, I think it's a pretty cool plan. I think it actually actually works out quite well, especially with Tony Stark's considered because he's he's quite easily manipulated. Yeah, mm. he was very Look, easily manipulated. It, it's a complex plan, but it's. The details of that actually make it work. Like, yeah. it, it, it's not, you know, a stupid, um, Super unnecessary villain. or, you know, nonsensical plan. Like, he actually pulls at the right strings at the right yeah. time. It's kind of like so. Batman versus Superman. It actually makes sense. Well, that's pretty much where I was going to go, <laughs> but I thought I'd hold for that for now. It actually makes a lot of sense. Although, I do think that the, that the, the two opposing superhero teams could have sat down and talked about it a little bit more. <laughs> well, of course, but, you know, they're superheroes. That's what they do. I mean, they're superheroes, they fight. Um, I'm wondering if the insurance companies will, um, in, the, in the Marvel Universe have uh, a clause for superhero damage. Well, in the Marvel Universe comics, there's a company called Damage Control, right. which uh, repair the stuff after the superheroes have broken stuff up. And uh, they did release a Damage Control miniseries, which was a, it was a comedy series. <laughs> they and, did two, uh, didn't they, in the end? Oh, uh, did they do another one? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I've only got the first one. The first one's hilarious. <laughs> that's pretty good. <funny. laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, so basically, that's about as much as the story as I want to give, uh, give you, because, I mean, that's essentially all it is. Hmm. Um, so, it's, so, I mean, it is. It's, it's friend versus friend, you know, teammate versus teammate. And uh, introduction of Spider-Man. That's pretty much what you need to know. Oh, I Black Panther, of course. Um, well, I'd like to talk about, first of all, the introduction of the two new characters. Sweet. Um, first of all, I love the Black Panther in this. Yeah, he's awesome. Like, you, you don't get a huge amount of backstory for him. You get just enough to sort of pique your interest in the character. You get a really nice setup for him. Um, and he comes across as, you know, noble and regal and... You know, intelligent and kick-ass, which is pretty much exactly what you want the Black Panther to be. Um, My only criticism with him is that the first time you see him suited up, I'm like, who the hell is this dude? <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, they unmask him in a, in a way that enables you to sort of go, oh, yeah, there's that guy. Right. <laughs> which is, yeah. which well, is pretty I, good. All comic readers are going to know exactly yeah, who he is. True. But I, as, as a I non-comic had, reader. I had yeah. to ask you. Who yeah, no, that's a fair point. Yeah, and um, it's this has certainly actually made me like piqued my interest in the Black Panther film that's coming in. I think like two years or something. Were you disappointed that the fa- that his father wasn't played by James Earl Jones? Look, I'm disappointed when everybody's father is played <laughs> by James Earl Jones. In fact, I'm disappointed with any movie that doesn't have James Earl Jones in it. Um, <laughs> no, I wasn't disappointed. Um, <laughs> that would have been cool though. It would have been. I think cool. he might have been a bit old for the part now. 
Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, so that was that was actually done, I think, very well and tied in very nicely uh, to the overarching story that they were telling. Yep. Um, in that the events leading to him sort of, I guess, becoming part of an Avengers team um, actually tied in directly with the story. Spider-Man's appearance, not so much. As in, it didn't really play into the story. It was kind of like a civil it's very war. We've got to, yeah, we've got, we've got to bring Spidey into it. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm with you. Having said that... Um, it's awesome. Okay, you're very Spidey-oriented <laughs> here. Having said that... Um, I did like... Is it Tom Holland? Is that the yeah, actor's name? Tom I Holland. did like his depiction of Spidey. He's um, cool. Unlike our previous Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield. Yep. And this is nothing against Garfield himself. I think this goes back to the, the screenwriters and the approach that Sony took. Tom Holland comes across as a total nerd. Yeah. Like, he's, 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 he's in the little bit of him that you get, he's just... He's got apple know, 2E for crying out loud. Yeah, exactly. He's, <laughs> his, his life's not great. Yeah. You know, he's cobbling stuff together for you know because he can't afford to buy anything yeah. decent. His um, suit looks far more like something the kid that age would make. Exactly right. <laughs> I like how he has to get helped out with that. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, that, that's right. It's like th- this This is, comes across more as a Spider-Man that, you know, that I can relate to because he's just, he's just not cool. Like yeah. One of my big problems uh, with Amazing Spider-Man is that Andrew Garfield's just too cool too, and too stylish cool. and yeah. you know. a bit too mature about it but also yeah. if you've got him juxtaposed juxtapositioned you know insert the correct word there next to <laughs> Robert Downey Jr and he, yeah. he, he's like a kid yeah yeah yeah. and he has he has the reactions you would expect a kid to have in the situations that he finds himself in in this film so yeah. um, you've got a middle arm that's awesome yeah H- having said that there's a cool cartoon of, uh, of that scene where, he, where he's he's, yeah, so he's like say so he stops with his hot designs. Like, you got a middle arm. That's awesome, dude. And then, you, then the next panel is um. He turns around and it's like it's uh, Colossus flexing. Yeah. That's why he's like, oh my god! I like a love heart. Oh, nice. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Having said that, Spidey's appearance, whilst whilst I enjoyed it, like not really in any way necessary for the stories he's, he's really kind of there to go look everyone it's spider-man and you know add another number to the fight between the two hero groups yeah um, I, I yeah i do kind of i kind of agree it's i mean he is clearly shoehorned in hmm. but it's done in such a cool way that i'm actually kind of willing to to let it go also i also was thinking very very hard about the tony stark is very much pro registration or very much pro control because he feels that they're out of control. And then he ropes in this 16-year-old kid who's only been active for six months and then throws him into the middle of a fight with all these super-powered beings. Yeah. It's Tony Stark. He's not the most dangerous of people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it was just an interesting juxtaposition. I mean, it's, I mean he, get, he gets a bit, a bit uh, protective of him later on, but, it's, but you're still throwing him into a fight with people who could theoretically kill him. Is, yes. I, find, I found it very strange. <laughs> yeah, talking about that, that particular fight, I, that, that's, that's the kind of... I mean, I'm not a big person for action-y action, but that's the kind of superhero fight I like. Everything There was no civilians around, and it was just them fighting each other with a lot of comedy, and I don't think the comedy would have worked as well without Spider-Man. Yeah, well, that's true. Especially one particular scene with the web and the legs. I won't spoil it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but as, as Richard pointed out, I am a massive Spider-Man fan, and uh, I was very much looking forward to this, and... And uh, yeah, I think he, I think he works. I think he works. Dare I say it? In the brief time that we had it, maybe even better than the Raimi Spider-Man is in. 
I liked him better than Toby Maguire. Toby Maguire, that's me. I'm trying to do. Toby Maguire seems so, older to me too. We'll see how it goes, though. We'll see how it goes yeah, in his actual it's, film. Um, yeah, look, I must admit, I didn't dislike Spider-Man's appearance as much as I thought I would. When when the, I saw the trailer, I'm like, oh, no, really? Yeah. He shouldn't have been in the trailer. Really? He's and I bet at the end credits where Spidey will be back, it's like, well, that just cheapens Black Panther because he's going to be back too, you know? It's <laughs> like, what's mm. that? So, um, as far as the plot of the, the film goes and the actual writing, I actually think uh, they've done pretty well here. Um, it is a long film, and... There's as early on, especially I thought, yeah, it's it's kind of there's a lot of actiony action, as Crystal would say, but that's all it seemed to be. But as it progresses and the action, you know, actually um, progresses the story, and also I got to say, progresses the characters. Mm. There's some very, you know, n- nice character moments, that, and most of the characters get a chance to at least have, you know, one or two good character scenes. Yeah, um, to sort of progress them al- along. You know, whatever character arc sort of progression they're hoping to do here. Um, and it does leave a fair few characters sort of up in the air as to where they're going to go next, um, which I think is a good thing for, you know, Marvel's universe. Like, I don't know where these characters are going next, and that's, that will make me interested in seeing the next batch of films. So, um, yeah, so I like the character work. Cap especially, I think there's a lot more to Captain America here than there has been in the previous... Avengers and Cap films because partially because here he's he's asked to basically step up you know it's like you're all about this this ideology that that you've been espousing through the films and now you're placed in a situation where that ideology is actually going to put you know pit you against your friends and teammates and things like that so there are moments in this where I've really got a sense of the Captain America that I'm used to reading in, in the comics, you know, that that Captain America that is the symbol of the ideology that he's meant to stand for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciate Did you get that in Winter Soldier, though? It, was, it, it certainly developed in Winter Soldier, but here I think is where the big payoff is, okay. you know. Um, because, like I said, here, like, he's, he's, he's placed in a difficult situation. Well, Do I turn a difficult against... situation with Winter Soldier as well, isn't it? Yeah, but here it's... Him versus the government? Yeah, but here it's against your, you know, your friends and teammates. Like it's, it's. I think that's a, it's a more personal uh, relationship that you have. Whereas the government is, is you know, a, a bigger body and yeah. uh, not quite so personal, you know, connection that Cap has. Right. Um, and he steps up and takes command and does his thing and does not fall. Let let his his ideology and his beliefs fall to the wayside. Like he he stands up for what he believes in, and you know, I appreciate that. Um, I still find him a boring character. Okay. He works with the rest of the teams around him, but a film that focuses more on him and less on the others. I, I, that's why I like this one because it's got more of the others in it. He works <laughs> in an ensemble, but as a main character, I don't think he works that well. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah, so, so story-wise, character-wise, I actually like this film. Um me too. I think everybody gets a decent amount of screen time, um, including Ant Man. My favourite bits are the comedy. Yeah, I love the comedy. The bit in the Volkswagen. And they, was play, cool. they, they, they play the comedy well. Yeah, I think. Um, I've actually haven't seen the Ant Man film yet. I must admit, but I did like Ant Man <laughs> here, and it's uh, made me realise I should probably actually catch up on that film at some point. Yes, you should. <laughs> 
Um, There's also a bit in there for people who watch the Shield, Agents of Shield's TV show. So if you don't if you don't watch that, you may not know the significance of the blue, the uh, blue liquid. But uh, it looked like looked like ice packs to me. <laughs> yeah, like the yeah, like the oh, the ones you stick in the freezer. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, so if you if you're a fan of that show, then yep, you'll you'll get that reference. But um, I will say though, the film isn't without a couple of flaws. Just um, before you pick on the flaws, uh, yeah. I, I would like to say uh, one of the standouts to me was the special effects, especially the uh, I don't know, can I say it. The, the de-aging of Robbie, Robert Downey Jr. Yes, I really yeah. It's not really saying why it happened, pivotal. but I was very, very impressed with that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, the fight scenes were actually, from a CGI perspective, looked really good as well, I thought. Some are a bit fast and confusing, but yeah. Which, yeah, we did say from a CGI perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which actually brings me to, I, I think, the main flaw that I have with this film is the way in which parts of it are directed um i you know in the past you know listeners will know that i'm just not a fan of handheld especially when especially when handheld and having the cameraman moving and there are a lot of shots here where you know people are running there's a lot of running in this film people are running and the camera is running with them and it's jolting around and it that kind of annoys me yeah. Um, it gives me a little bit of motion sickness when I'm watching it. It's not like near don't... as annoying as handicam for no reason. If you have two people standing there having a conversation, yeah, and the hand, and the camera is handheld, why? Why? That What's just, the point? That, that just takes you right outside of it. Yeah. So frustrating. And unfortunately, this film had that. Yeah. And um, as Crystal says, there are a couple of times there because of that, and also because of a lot of quick editing as well. They probably overdo the editing a bit during the fight sequences. There are a couple of times there where it's a little distracting away from the actual yeah. action itself. I'm with you. Um, I think I think Winter Soldier's fight scenes are some of the best superhero fight scenes on film. And uh, and for some reason, I think that for this one, it's I don't know what's happened. I think they've, they've someone said something or something. I don't know, maybe. But it's, it's so it's not quite Batman Begins level of terrible, but it's edging towards that. <laughs> and it's like, well, what's going on here? So it's, I mean, they're still cool. They're still very very well done, hmm. very well choreographed. But yeah, just a couple of the, too you know too many yeah. snippets, and especially early on, it's it's funny because when you get to the later, yeah, it's fight the early scenes, on ones, isn't it? Yeah, mm. when you get to the later fight scenes, it's like someone else is directing them. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a there's a great fight sequence between Captain America and the Winter Soldier when they're beating up on Iron Man, mm. and they're throwing the shield backwards and forwards to one another, and the camera just it's a slow move. Yeah, but it's steady. There's nothing shaky about it, and it and it's brilliant because yeah. it's like you're watching the shield bounce around. You're watching the two of the, the three of them fight. You're watching the the um, the teamwork between Cap and the Winter Soldier, and it's just spot on. And how long did that scene take to Corey to? Ah, uh, oh, must to have must have taken must have God. taken forever to get that right. Yeah. But but this is the thing, and it's like I wish they'd done that early on with with scenes like like the Black Panther fighting scenes at the start. It's like just stop and and let us really see how awesome the Black Panther is because he's the new character, you know. Mm. As you say, we saw how awesome the Winter Soldier was in the previous film with some brilliantly choreographed fights. Mm. Um, there are some great moves here done by um, the Black Widow, but a couple of them 
I guess unless you're a professional wrestling fan and you've seen the moves before, <laughs> you might not be able to recognise what's going on because they're too busy chopping and changing and moving the camera around. And yeah. So I, I must admit, especially early on, it annoyed me, but it kind of peters out a bit as the film progresses. You're totally right. It actually does peter out. I didn't even yeah. hear that at the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe one brother did one bit and the other brother did the other bit. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah. but certainly, the, the uh, for me, I was a little annoyed with the film early on, but... The second half of the film, especially, it just it really takes off and picks up, and all those problems disappear. And I found myself, you know, enjoying it in that level that you enjoy big blockbuster films. I think this is textbook superhero filmmaking, at least the second half. I'm just while we're still in the fights, the the main one, and this is not a spoiler because you know what's going to happen: the teams against the teams. I I could have been just me, but I, I kept forgetting who was on which team. <laughs> oh, I wasn't. Well, I mean, mentioning that that big fight, yeah. I just, I mean, that. I mean, obviously, it's the uh, the pole moment and uh, the fight at the air at Moscow Airport. And mm-hmm. I mean, believe the hype. I mean, I, I, I before I was seeing this, I actually read that this is the best superhero fight put to film. And I made actually, I I made that claim myself for um, Superman versus the two Kryptonians in Man of Steel, um, Fregora and. And the other guy who gets no name, <laughs> so you have to assume he's non or something. Like, I don't know, but uh, this—I mean, this this fight at Moscow Airport, I think, is 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 unbelievable. It just—it I mean, ticks—it ticks all the boxes. Everybody gets a shot. It's, it's so well choreographed. It's it's clear, and you can see what's going on. It's got it's got some actual surprise moments that they thankfully didn't put in the trailer. Yeah, I liked the the Ant Man surprise. Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah, just it, uh... magnificent stuff. Yeah, I think it helps too that Marvel's done a great job of building their universe and the characters within their universe. And so part of what made this fight work for me as well is you've actually got a bit of a vested interest in these characters. Mm. You know, in, in all of these characters, where a lot of the superhero fights that you see these days, like, for example, say in Avengers 1, when they're fighting, you know, random aliens. In Avengers 2, they're fighting random Ultron robot type things, you know. Whereas here, because they're fighting one another, it's like... Yeah, each of these characters you've seen before outside of... Well, really, outside of Black Panther. You've seen all of them before, built up an idea of who they are. And so when they're fighting, you you are invested in the fight in a way that I really haven't been invested in fights in superhero films outside of maybe Superman versus Zod from Superman 2. Yeah, and that, and, that, and that investment is what actually helps with, with, with your emotions during the fight. Like, I mean, the fight between uh, Captain America and Bucky and Iron Man... When it just when it, then it comes down to I mean as you all as everybody knows it's going to happen it's going to come down to Captain America versus Iron Man it's so emotional because you know these guys are friends and the and the fight is so brutal that I just I'm just like every blow I'm like damn this is this is it's like I'm in the fight with them you know what I mean it's like yeah. this, is, this I feel bruised after this fight that, that's one of the points that made me think that Tony Stark is a little bit too easily manipulated yeah <laughs> it also helps though I think that. Um, more so than the comic story, here in the film, they've made it really clear what what the opinions of the characters are and why they're for or against what's going on and, and what their ideologies are in a way that, to me, makes sense. Hmm. And, and actually, I, I felt the problem with the, with the Civil War comic was that a lot of characters were just shoehorned into an opinion hmm. and often it didn't play with the characters as they were established. Whereas here, as these characters have been established throughout the, the numerous movies, I can fully see 
why they've made the decisions they have and why they're arguing for what they're arguing. And, and no one's actually right or wrong with their arguments. Both, both sides make sense. You know, Cap's argument, I can understand, especially from Cap's perspective. Iron Man argument actually makes incredible sense to me as well. So, so that also helps because when you get to the final fight, it's like, I didn't want either to win or lose per se, because I like both characters and I, and their arguments are, are both actually pretty strong. Hmm. So uh, that being said, though, were you uh, Team Cap or Team Iron Man? Iron Man. Iron Man? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I, I was Team Cap, but um, that's often all, that's also like certain preconceived comic ideas. I, I like Cap more than Iron Man. Scarlet Witch is my favourite Marvel character, so she was on Cap's team and, you know, always always been a big fan of the, the Falcon and the, and the Falcon and Cap sort of team, so... Yeah, I do like Iron Man better than, than Captain America, but but I'm mainly Team Iron Man because I think it it makes sense to. They can't be just be like a rogue team. Yeah, uh, a, a law unto themselves. Yeah, but I'm with I'm I'm, I'm well I'm I'm leaning more to Team Cap more because of what he says when, when he says, but what happens if they if we need to be somewhere and they say we can't, yeah. then you plead your case and then. Or yeah, vice versa. Or vice versa. They, yeah, they, they tell us to go do something go, yeah. that is... I mean, because they are all human and they all have their own vested interests. Mm-hmm. But then you plead, you plead your case. You work, yeah. you work it out. You can't... You, I, I by then people so. are dead. So that's it's, it's the problem with, with so, politics. So, so, is you sit there arguing about everything nobody actually takes any action. Yeah, but then they go and take action and kill innocent civilians. Yeah. A few innocent civilians. Collateral <laughs> damage. <laughs> <laughs> they drop buildings on people. To be fair to the Avengers, in most of the situations we've seen, the bad guys were going to do it any, yeah. anyway. I mean, Ultron yeah. is a bit different because they actually created Ultron, but yeah. those aliens would have invaded anyway and completely decimated well, New York yeah. had the Avengers not been there. And, so, and yeah. I've no you know. doubt that if a wormhole opened up above New York and aliens come out, so the, the governments of the world would want the Avengers to go in there. That yeah. seemed actually really irritating because I was like, yeah, I was like, okay, the aliens invaded. All right, the Avengers don't just sit there eating their shawarma. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and the whole place gets destroyed. Well, what are you going to do? And then, the, and then the second one with the... With the helicarriers, it's like, yeah, okay, well, yeah, there was a lot of damage, but they would have wiped out half the population of Earth. Exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, the Ultron argument makes sense. It does. Um, the Ultron argument does make sense. Yeah. But the, but the other two, it's like, well, where, why would you be if they weren't here to do what they did? Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's a th- I'm sure that they would send them in in that situation. Or would they? That they, that they <laughs> let the aliens destroy the Earth. Back when Hydra was in, in control. But, I don't uh, know. I mean, if we see what the United Nations is like in responding to, you know, national crises and international crises in real life. Sometimes their responses can be a little, well, let's say weak, a little... Weak! Yeah. Well, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be generous. To the UN them, yeah. just recently had a council with Anita Sarkeesian and a bunch of other feminists showing up to, to plead their cases because Anita Sarkeesian wants to ban negative comments on the internet and anybody who leaves a negative comment is, can have their IP revealed. It's like, come on! The UN has better things to do with their time. One of them wanted to f- the UN to force fashion, the fashion industry to make clothes for larger ladies because she liked cool-looking clothes. So instead of joining a gym, she wanted the UN to force a private business to make clothes for her. She can make clothes for herself. That's right. Make, clothes, make her own damn clothes. <laughs> so, anyway. However, that's not in any way 
the UN actually responding to crises, which is what I was actually talking about here. Well, according to them, it's crises. <laughs> That's somebody actually approaching the UN with a petition or, you know... That, well, they that's were, a, they that's were, a they were invited, to, they were invited to be fair, but... Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, sorry. <laughs> completely lost anything I was going to say. Now. It's gone. Uh, anyway, don't get me started on the UN. Yeah, paper tigers. Anyway, back to the film. <laughs> but once, once again, these very arguments yeah. is what you what the film is trying to exactly. present. Like, yeah. do you, you know... So, um, um, you, you had your couple of negative things. I, my One of my negative things is... is totally comic nerd nitpicky yeah there's no way that the Winter Soldier could outrun the Black Panther <laughs> it just could not happen <laughs> I mean he outdisses him quite quite substantially I'm like no no well they weren't running through traffic at the time no. maybe no <laughs> no and they got a straight on for, for a good 50 metres it's this, just straight okay, up this is no distractions range. there's no way the Black Panther wouldn't have caught up to the Winter Soldier yeah this is total nerd rage <laughs> And Captain America. So, anyway, but uh, you've, got to allow, you've got to allow for drama in a chase scene. <laughs> that so Captain America's obviously not fast enough because he steals someone's car. So that's the thing. It's the, it, Captain America would be would, would would have been able to catch up to the Winter Soldier. So if he could, there's no doubt Black Panther could. Mm. Anyway, like I said, that, totally, that, that, totally nerd rage nitpicky there. That, that's, a, that's a nitpicky thing, though. He steals someone's car. Like, <laughs> he's running along, grabs them out of the car, kicks out their windscreen, and goes on to destroy their car. I'm thinking. That was my car. I would not be pleased. I don't care about a Captain America's agenda. That's my car, that's, man. That's my nothing. Car. That's nothing to the amount of car damage Batman does in his movies when he's driving that massive, like, tank version of. Uh... Like seriously, Batman begins. Batman like totally destroys streets, cars, a car park full of cars. Like, yeah. it's a in, in terms of negatives. Uh, yeah, I basically just have to agree with. Richard, I mean, the the action scenes at the start are just too choppy. Mm. The overuse of handicam is uh, incredibly frustrating. Mm. But other than that, I think this is pretty much a perfect superhero film. Sort of made up for the last Avengers film. Oh, it's definitely better than Avengers 2. Mm. Um, I actually enjoyed Avengers 2. So I like it too, but, it but it's definitely better than Avengers 2. Saying something's better than something doesn't negate the fact that the other thing's good. Yeah, no, that's true. Except for Batman vs Superman. <laughs> when the uh, turd that I stepped over on the way home <laughs> it was, it was better than Batman vs Superman. I don't know, I wouldn't have sat there and watched that for two and a half hours. <laughs> um, I, I did say when we reviewed uh, Batman vs Superman that you know, in a couple of months' time Marvel were going to come along and show DC, or not DC actually, it should be Warner Brothers, yeah. and show Warner Brothers exactly how to do this the right way. Well, it's DC too. Jeff Johns had a lot of say. Yeah, true. Uh, but for what for, for for me, the important thing here is that Marvel has created their hero versus hero movie, and they have completely shown Warner Brothers how it should be done. Hmm. They've taken their time. They've built the characters up over multiple movies. You know, they've shown us exactly who they are, and then when they've they've given us a logical, understandable, and relatable reason for why they're actually fighting, yeah. rather than. What the hell is going on here? Why are these two idiots attacking one another? Although there's a lot to be said for the classic comic, you know, a hero shows up when there's another, a new hero on the block and they look, they think they're a criminal and they attack and then they have a misunderstanding fight and then they, they shake hands and go eat some trauma. Yeah, but in Batman <laughs> versus Superman, it's established that Batman's been around for 20 years. I'm with it. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> look, it's a, really you'll never is... ever hear an argument in favour of Batman versus Superman. Okay, fair lips. enough. Well, look, like I said, I, I think... 
um, like I won't, I won't sort of rave about this movie like it is the greatest superhero movie ever. Um, it's I won't almost quite perfect. go. I won't quite go that far. But it is. It's the, still not Superman. It is the right way to do your hero versus hero movie. If this is how you, if if you want to do that story, this is the better way to Superhero do it. Superhero one hundred and one. Yeah. Marvel and DC should do some role reversal, and, and um, Marvel should produce a film with DC characters and vice versa. No. I think that'd be interesting. <laughs> it would be interesting. That is the word that I would use. <laughs> it's bad enough unleashing David Goyer on Superman. I don't want David Goyer on Captain America as well. It doesn't have to be the... On anything. It doesn't have to have to be the Avengers characters. Yeah, you know, that would be, though. I mean, the Avengers is the juggernaut part of Marvel's cinematic universe. <laughs> final thoughts, ratings? Well, ratings, final thoughts? Well, I, I pretty much summed mine up. This yep. is exactly how, cool. you know, this is exactly what Superman versus Batman wasn't and probably should have been. I would give this uh, three and a half looks. Okay. Yeah, same three and a half, maybe four. I'm a, a big, fan, big fan of the comedy. They tried to shoehorn some comedy into Batman vs. Superman it didn't work nearly as well mm. <laughs> it's, uh, the clips really work work in, in this movie fair enough cool I give it four and a half out of five Luke's huge I thought it was nearly perfect you did indeed as I stated <laughs> and uh, I cannot wait for the Spider-Man movie because <laughs> I think they'll actually they'll do it right I do want to point out just one, one little quick uh, little nerd trivia thing for you you know the codes that are used to activate the Winter Soldier? One of those words is Homecoming, and that's the title of the Spider-Man film. Oh. Ooh. Right. <laughs> I don't know if it means anything. I thought, <laughs> it it was a, I thought it was a weird word to have put in there. I, I'm just saying. It's a very American phrase. Yeah. And uh, as a, just a final, final uh, tidbit for everybody, say for the credits, as I'm sure anybody who's seen any Marvel film knows by now, there's a, end, uh, a, there's a scene at the end of the... the Sort of the credits, you know, the, the, the animated. animated, the animated credits, yeah. and then there's another scene at the end of the actual credits, credits. So, uh, and I yeah. tell you, those credits, credits go for a very long time. Yeah, bear it out. Yeah, it's a kind of an interesting thing. So it's, if you if you um, catching it on Blu-ray, just fast forward the credits. Yeah, to very the, much yeah. so. Well, the, the the scene at the end of the credits, credits is better than the than the the first extra scene. Although not for me. It, it was for me. For you, it was. Yeah. <laughs> there is a school of thought that every single person in the credits deserves to be there and you should read every single name. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all due respect, but I'm not going to sit you through... got to spare 30 minutes for Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Lord of the Rings, seriously. I mean, there's no exaggeration. Lord of the Rings goes for about 15 minutes. No, <laughs> it goes for 25. 25 minutes. Anyway, on that note... And that's, and, and, <laughs> Let's uh, move on to some coming soon. <laughs> Okay, coming soon. In Australian cinemas, uh, May 12th, we get Free State of Jones. Matthew McConaughey is a defiant southern farmer who inspires and leads a rebellion against the Confederacy. The reconnaissance continues. Yep. Ah, And the poster looks intense, man. It looks intense. It looks quite good. Uh, And then a copy of the uh, Free State poster is the Angry Birds movie poster, which I think is hilarious. Uh, Angry Birds movie, I'll be avoiding. Don't give a rat's ass. (laughs) Um, We also get a documentary uh, about the New York Metropolitan Museum of Arts fashion exhibition called The First Monday in May. And another Tina Fey comedy, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Actually, it's a dramedy. 
Yeah, that I'm also that I also uh, want to see. So that's WTF. Yeah. Cool. So that's it from me for episode 994 and the crew. Richard. That is me. It, it is you. <laughs> My God, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> After by, all these years. By Jove, you've figured it out. <laughs> Luke. 20 years of friendship revealed in a nutshell. <laughs> and Crystal. One ring to rule them all. <laughs> all right. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. You've been listening to NCP. Thank you for being a part of our crew. If you would like to support the show, you can use the Amazon widget on our website to do your Amazon shopping. If you have any feedback, please go to nerdculturepodcast.com forward slash contact us where you will find a list of the many different ways you can interact with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.